KBCS Community Radio. I'm Yuko Kodama. Next is a KBCS interview with former King County Council member Larry Gossett, a former Seattle chapter Black Panther Party member and one of four activists who were instrumental in securing resources for community organizations. This group was commonly referred to as the Gang of Four, and Councilmember Gossett worked alongside Roberto Maestas of El Centro de la Raza, Bob Santos of the Chinatown International District's Interim Community Development Association, and Bernie Whitebear of Daybreak Star Indian Cultural Center. Also in this interview is Governor Gary Locke. Governor Locke served as the 10th United States Ambassador to China. He was the U.S. Secretary of Commerce under the Obama administration, the 21st Governor of Washington State, and the first Chinese-American governor in U.S. history. Today, Governor Locke is the interim president at Bellevue College. You'll start with Councilmember Gossett discussing the power of building alliances with other students of color in Seattle. Councilmember Gossett, your work has been around coalition building among people of color. Tell me about the history. There have been conflict between people of color in this community and in this nation uh, in the past between Asians and Blacks, between Blacks and Latinos, between all the minorities and Native American folks. But in Seattle, what I would like to at least spend a couple minutes on has been the kind of unity that we've been able to build despite these cultural, ethnic differences because it was necessary that we have united fronts in the political arena. So we've been able to come together. I'd like to start with the Black Student Union that I got involved in organizing at the University of Washington. The BSU at the University of Washington became the first Black Student Union in the country. The university had established itself, operated off the premise that we are here to serve white, middle-class youth and younger adults. And there was no attention, no legitimacy given to the other national minorities living in Washington State. The BSU had non-Blacks at its origins. He had two Native American sisters and one Latino, a brother, and about 20 Black students. All three are examples of the very small number of uh, non-white students that were on the campus at the University of Washington in the winter of 1968. 35,000 students, about 200 plus Asians, four Latinos, two Native Americans, and 63 Blacks. And then in turn, we use that information to charge the university with institutionally a racist environment. We set up the ethnic studies program to teach the truth about national minority histories in Washington State, and we said classes needed to be on the campus. We also said there need to be academic and social structures on the campus that were responsive to the needs of non-white students, and that led to the university building the Ethnic Cultural Theater and the Ethnic Cultural Center. Right away, we demanded change. We demanded that the university establish a program to recruit 
minorities. And by minorities at that time, we said Blacks, Latinos, Asians, Pacific Islanders, uh, and Native Americans. But we went a little further than that. We became the first Black Student Union in the country that demanded that more poor whites get an opportunity to come to the University of Washington. So when the university under the leadership of Dr. Samuel Kelly set up a program at a black division, at an Asian and Pacific Islander division, it had a Latino division and it had a native American and disadvantaged white division. So we included everybody and saw the need to do that. Former King County Council member Larry Gossett goes on to describe the work of the Gang of Four. Councilmember Gossett was a key member of four powerful activists in the Seattle area. In this next excerpt of the interview, Councilmember Gossett refers to Bob Santos, hailing from Seattle's Chinatown International District, Roberto Maestas, founder of El Centro de la Raza of Beacon Hill, and Bernie Whitebear of Daybreak Star Indian Cultural Center. All four of us came together on this you know, in light of the struggles that were going on here in the Pacific Northwest. Gary and I have already mentioned that we're both Franklin graduates, but what I'd like to add right now is that Roberto Maestas, in the winter quarter of 1968, was a teacher at Franklin. He was a Spanish teacher. And the only reason I met him is when we had that sit-in at Franklin after the principal had kicked two leaders of the Black Student Union out of school for having fights with white kids. And according to the Black students, that was the, about the 11th conflict that year between Black and, and uh, white students. And in every case, the Black students were suspended and the white kids were sent back. Also, when we went into the school that day, we were told that two African-American women were being put out of school for wearing their hair natural. The principal had actually written a note saying they cannot return to Franklin without their hair being straightened because they were not beautiful women anymore. So we mobilized, had to sit in, we won the ideal of getting these students back into school. At the University of Washington, after we had a sit in later in May of 68, we won the right to set up that minorities program that I set up. So Roberto and I met each other that day. I met Bernie Whitebear only because 1970, he called the BSU office and said, we would like for our Black brothers to support our takeover at Fort Lawton, where we're trying to get land that was promised us way back in 1855 by a treaty we signed, and we never got the 34 acres. And we sent Black Student Union and Black Panthers out to show solidarity with our Native brothers and sisters. I met Bob Santos, one of the founders of the International District Improvement Association in Chinatown International District at what was called uh, Caritas House, which was a community service center on 19th and Jefferson, 1968, when we couldn't find a place for the BSU or the Black Panther parties to meet, and Bob let us meet there. So that's how the four amigos met each other through struggle, and we were able to work together for 40 years here in the Northwest. And we had calls from all over the country asking us how we did it and became a model for other multiracial organizing efforts. Just as you were talking about the 
the occupation of spaces in order to facilitate the Black Student Union at Franklin High School to start the kind of work to get the African American studies and into the University of Washington. There seems to be, you know, I'm just thinking of this Chaz Chop that happened over uh, June, the Capitol Hill occupied protest to defund the police, which made international news. And um, this made me think of how occupation as a form of protest has a rich history in this region between the Franklin High School sit-in and uh, the University of Washington, and then the takeover of the Beacon Hill Elementary School, which became El Centro de la Raza later with its victory, the occupation of Fort Lawton to take over the former military facility for services to the urban indigenous community through Daybreak Star. And tell me about the occupying spaces, you know, to fight for a cause that happens a lot in our region. Uh, I think that it was a reflection of the region and uh, we had very socially conscious young as well as older adult leadership here in the greater Seattle area that helped us to be successful at getting the powers that be, whether it be city, county, or state government, to be responsive to the legitimate needs of historically discriminated against minorities in this region. I think that's what led to us being able to be victorious and people got organized effectively to support El Centro, Daybreak Star, the creation of the International District Improvement Association and many other organizations in Chinatown International District, as well as the growth of the Centrary Motivation Program at camp and the Indian struggle out on the Puyallup River. We got called to be supportive out there, and then we in turn asked them to come to Seattle to support various struggles of minorities here. And we were relatively successful in a lot of those efforts. I know that Bob Santos was able to get a tremendous multiracial mobilization of support around the building of hundreds and hundreds of affordable housing units in the international district, which has a lot to do with why that is not a completely gentrified community today. I want to add. Um, to something that Larry said. Um, when Larry and, and his uh, compatriots occupied Franklin High School in 1968, uh, I was actually a student uh, that year. I was a senior. It was in the spring of my senior year. And and quite frankly, you know, you were asking about sit-ins and occupations, but that sit-in of the principal's office opened my eyes to the struggles of black students. And in some ways, I led a very sheltered life uh, at Franklin High School, even though it came from a very um, ethnically diverse neighborhood. Uh, but I was, uh, you know, didn't have many friends at all, quite frankly, and certainly not that many friends uh, that were African-American. And so, so all of us led somewhat of a sheltered life, uh, faced our own issues of discrimination, but really wasn't aware that much about the struggles of black Americans. And so occupations and peaceful protest and, and of course the civil rights movement by Martin Luther King and the actions of former Congressman John Lewis during that period of time, they really opened the eyes to so many people across America. 
the same way that the video of the killing of George Floyd has really opened the eyes to many more Americans and, and actually people around the world. So I want to thank Larry uh, for that courageous effort and, and just everything that they did at the University of Washington that then made it possible for all people and, and especially people of color to gain admission to the University of Washington or even to take courses in ethnic studies until it was Larry and the Black Student Union. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Larry. Now I wanted to uh, turn to Governor Locke. You hail from Beacon Hill. And as I understand, your grandfather was a houseboy. And then you moved on to the governor's mansion, navigating these institutions throughout the state. So navigating the interests of rural communities of eastern Washington, in addition to the urban areas. People currently look at you, you know, as kind of the embodiment of the model minority. And that can have its, you know, positive and negative consequences. Talk about how you navigated that. Uh, when I ran for office, um, as you indicated, Yuko, I mean, the, the state of Washington still is predominantly white. Even when I ran for King County Executive and, and won, I mean, the county is predominantly white. So you cannot count on the so-called minority vote to get you into office. Even as a state legislator, the district has a large percentage of Asian Americans, but many of them are not U.S. citizens and can't vote. And so you just can't rely on an ethnic group, at least in our state of Washington or King County, to propel you into office. My family story is that my grandfather came to the United States as a teenager and worked as a houseboy for a family in the state capitol learned English while washing dishes and sweeping floors and doing the laundry. He went back to China, got married, had a family where my father was born and aunts and uncles. And then grandfather came back by himself to continue work. Uh, by then he was working as a cook in the hospitals of Seattle, Virginia Mason. And eventually it was Dr. Mason, the founder of Virginia Mason, who, who suggested that grandpa go back home and bring the whole family over. And so he did. And so my dad came over with aunts and uncles when my father was about 12 or 13 years old. They were in detention for several days at the Immigration Naturalization Service just off of Dearborn, down by the stadiums. And uh, it was Doc Mason who went down to vouch uh, for my grandfather and my father and aunts and uncles that they were legit and released. And then my father... Uh, joined the United States Army just before the outbreak of World War II as part of the Normandy invasion and the very vicious battles against the Germans under General Patton's march to uh, Berlin. So the war was over. My dad went to Hong Kong, met my mom. They got married and brought her back to Seattle. And so that's where we all grew up as kids. Uh, Yesler Terrace Housing Project for the first few years and then uh, moved to Beacon Hill. I faced discrimination and didn't really know it at the time. Uh, from a teacher in the third grade at Beacon Hill Elementary School, which is now El Centro de la Raza. A teacher would ask us every morning what we had for breakfast. And we had so many Italian kids, Japanese kids, uh, Chinese kids, Filipino kids, immigrant kids. And if we did not have the so-called traditional ham and eggs, pancakes for breakfast, we had our hands slapped with a ruler. And so, you know, the Filipino kids and the Japanese kids, I mean, for the Chinese kids, we had shifun or, or what we call juk, 
which was a kind of a rice porridge with uh, my mom put fish and put meat in it and vegetables. So it was probably healthier than ham and eggs, quite frankly, <laughs> uh, or bacon and eggs and pancakes. But we had our hands slapped. And so, so many of us kids were trying to then rebel against our parents and saying we wanted to be, quote, American. We were trying to wash out and, and get rid of any vestiges of our ethnic culture. And so I have to say that growing up, I'm embarrassed to say the amount of grief I caused my parents trying to reject my ethnic culture. And it wasn't until the civil rights movement and quite frankly, the, the efforts that Larry and his colleagues uh, started and the Martin Luther King and John Lewis and the war against Vietnam and the protests that I really opened my eyes and could really understand that I could be both Asian and American. I am Asian American, that, that we can celebrate our Asian heritage at the same time we celebrate the 4th of July and all the other American holidays. We all want good jobs for our kids. We want good schools. We want a clean environment. We want safe streets and we want to be respected. And so I really tried to, in all my campaigns, just try to relate to everyday people and say that, you know, my experience may be a little bit different from yours, but down deep, we share the same dreams and aspirations and worries. And I am committed to addressing these issues. And I think that resonated. You're growing up in Beacon Hill, becoming governor in Washington state, and then you went on to become the ambassador to China. You know, ironically, you, know, you were the victim of racial slurs when you resigned as ambassador to China. Um, they considered you disloyal to the Chinese because you supported American values such as human rights, religious freedom, and less pollution. You just gave us the story from where you come from and the navigation of that in the U.S., could you reflect on how that ambassadorship to China, you know, this balancing of, of the worlds that you have needed to through throughout your life, you know, came through with this uh, ambassadorship to China? Well, first, let me just say that in my public service in the United States, certainly in the state of Washington, I really drew upon my experience growing up as a son of immigrants and as a person of color to really try to ensure that all the policies that I dealt with and the laws that we were creating had that sensitivity. When the Republicans under Governor Spellman tried to eliminate adult dental care for low-income adults, I, I just had that image of my grandmother who I visited in almost the refugee camps outside of Hong Kong because she just escaped across the communist border before it closed down in the early 1960s. And she had only one tooth the people in the in the little settlement had to puree her food for her so that she could eat. And so when we did welfare reform or when or when the Congress uh, under Newt Gingrich eliminated food stamps for legal immigrants, I said, you know, this is contrary to what America stands for. And so Washington state was one of the only and the first state to offer state funded food stamps for legal immigrants. Let me say that when I went to China, I think uh, early on there was a lot of fanfare uh, about my, you know, carrying my own luggage and traveling uh, economy class and buying my own coffee. And certainly there was that picture that went viral even before we landed in China, where we were about to get on the airplane at, at SeaTac, and I was getting some coffee at the local Starbucks at the airport, and my a daughter was standing next to me, and I had a backpack on. I don't know who took that photograph. It went viral. And so it was all the buzz in China that why is there a U.S. ambassador carrying a backpack and buying his own coffee 
because the <laughs> officials in China have everything taken care of for them. Someone holds the briefcase, someone holds an umbrella over their head, so, and someone runs off and fetches tea or coffee for them. After a few days, it gets to be known that we travel economy class, so that's unheard of. So there was all this great um, fanfare, and we became very popular with the people. To the consternation of the Chinese government, quite frankly, because then the Chinese people were saying, why aren't our government officials like Ambassador Locke? And I said, oh, oh, no, we can't have that. I mean, this is not getting me off on the right foot if the Chinese officials are going to be resentful of, of me. In the end, I had more access to high-ranking Chinese government officials than any other U.S. ambassador uh, before me. And it was because of, of my Chinese heritage. They were very proud that I was uh, appointed as U.S. ambassador. But the Chinese people were beginning to think and expect that I would take the position of China in all these U.S.-China issues, being a Chinese-American. And perhaps it was the fact that I didn't speak Mandarin that really helped, uh, and I spoke Cantonese, but not Mandarin, which is the official dialect that then reinforced in the minds of both the government officials and the Chinese people, ooh, Ambassador Locke is really an American. I think it helped them understand that I was in China to represent the interests of America, the American people, the American government, and President Obama. I was not there to advocate on behalf of China. Certainly in all my dealings with the U.S. government, I think I had the advantage of understanding the Chinese perspective and could help relay that uh, to Washington, D.C. But my job was to represent America and not China. So when I left uh, China to come back to the United States, there were some publications by the Chinese government that said, good riddance, uh, you know, he's a, he's a banana, he's yellow on the outside, but white <laughs> on the inside. Oh, uh, no more showboating and and you know it's all it's all fake that he that he travels economy class and it's all an act to try to disrupt and undermine the chinese government but what was really great about the blowback to that official government propaganda editorial say good riddance was that the people on the social internet started saying how embarrassed they were by this government editorial and how proud they were of me. To this day, when I go back to China, uh, pre-COVID-19, I'd, I'd run across people who would just say, thank you very much uh, for exposing the air pollution. Thank you very much for improving the visa process. Thank you very much for being a very humble and, and everyday person. And, uh, and even the government officials privately would tell me how much they appreciated everything that we were doing. It was just that the propaganda arm of the Chinese government was trying to cut me down. Mm, well, yeah, the, the people speak. Uh, there was a question from, uh, from our questionnaire. He had a question for you, Governor Locke. Given the increased tensions between the U.S. and China recently, how do you see the relationship between China and the U.S. play out in the coming years? Well, clearly, uh, these are very tense times in the U.S.-China relationship, and it's really unfortunate. First of all, America and many other Western countries have very deep concerns about the economic trade policies of China, and now even more their human rights policies with respect to the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, and even their approach to the people of Hong Kong. So these are really, really tough times. But we also have so many interests in common, 
and, and we have a lot of partnerships, whether it's on medical research, uh, a collaboration on clean energy, trying to combat climate change. Uh, China's doing a lot uh, to combat climate change. And unfortunately, we in America have gone a little bit backwards. We are the two largest emitters of greenhouse gases. China produces more than any other country, but they have three to four times the population of America. Americans produce more per person than any other uh, country in the world. And so it really requires the cooperation, the concerted efforts of both countries. Because if China were to do a lot of stuff to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and America does nothing, there'll be no benefit to the world and vice versa. If America were really to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions and China did very little, then all of our efforts will be for naught. So we need to work together. Um, the trade war was ridiculous. Yes, we need to go after the economic and trade policies of China, but we can't do it alone. Because when we imposed tariffs on Chinese products, which then made all of the Chinese products much more expensive in the United States, from clothing to sporting goods to uh, tools, you name it, China retaliated and imposed tariffs, which is a surcharge on the price of all American goods going into China. So what did that do? Uh, it made the stuff coming from Canada, Germany, France, Australia, much cheaper compared to the American goods. So what did the Chinese do? They bought from Canada, Germany, France, Australia, instead of America. So th their businesses and their workers benefited while American companies and American workers lost out. And now those European and Canadian companies and governments, they very much support what we're trying to do. I mean, they have the same concerns about what China is doing in terms of trade and economic policies as well. But when it became a trade war between the United States and China, the companies of our allies, they benefited while they were rooting us on. All right. They got all the business while we suffered. We should have been working with all of our allies and doing things together against China. Just our whole approach to China has been wrong. The trade war was ridiculous, but we need to figure out a way in which we can cooperate while at the same time uh, standing up for our values in terms of rule of law, fair trade and economic policies, and certainly human rights. Thank you, Governor Nalaka. Recently with the COVID-19 pandemic, how do we reconcile a narrative about China that will not harm Asian Americans? Well, I, I think this uh, blowback and pushback against Asian Americans and specifically Chinese, Chinese Americans, uh, is because of our failed policies here at home. I mean, uh, we have the, or people in high office that are trying to, you know, deflect criticism and the blame and responsibility by saying it's all China's fault. That's clearly, wrong. China has mishandled this and clearly they need to be held account. But how is it that uh, so many other countries got the same information at the time that the United States did. And, and we can say it was not good information, but they got the same information, the same warnings as the United States. And yet they have been able to have dramatically fewer deaths than we in America. You know, we're 4% of the population, but 25% of all the COVID-19 deaths in the world. How is that? How is it that Taiwan less than 100 miles from the mainland of China, and they had a lot more people going back and forth between Taiwan and China than China and the United States. 
they got the same late warnings from China and from the WHO. I mean, if the United States had been Taiwan adjusting for a population, we would have had less than 100 deaths compared to 200,000 that we have today. I mean, how is it that Taiwan and South Korea, I mean, so close to China with, with all the people interacting, and even Japan had so few deaths, fewer deaths. What about Canada? All right. So, yeah, we, we need to get the answers from China, and China certainly should have been more forthcoming about the, the early uh, cases and the extent of the cases and what was going on. But all the other countries that had the same defective information were able to treat and, and handle this so much better than the United States. To both of you, I would like to ask, how can we bring about the structural change that we need for racial equity? And where do we start? And I'd like to start with you, Councilmember Gossett. Um, when we talk about where do we start in terms of uh, racial change, I think I'd like to interject a little something at this time that I think uh, American leaders and everyday Americans are going to be talking about more in the future. And it derives from a book that I just uh, finished reading. The name of the book is Cast, and it's by Isabel Wilkerson. And she wrote a book uh, earlier, about 12 years ago, called The Warmth of Other Sons, where she talks about the great migration of African-Americans from the South to Northern industrial cities all over the North, East, uh, uh, Central, and West. But she said, we need to be careful talking about just racial differences because caste has also been important in this land. And I think that in the future, to the extent that she might be right, we're going to have to take into consideration the extent to which certain groups in this country, African-Americans, have been treated more like a permanent caste group than a class. Class implies it's just a little easier to change. But if you're treated like you're an, an inborn group in the United States, is that because these folks are descendants of African women, they will be uh, considered Black or African in the United States and therefore inferior race. And there's nothing that they can do about being an inferior group in the future. They are here to work for no pay whatsoever. And no matter what they do individually or just as poor people, they will still be treated as an inferior or an unequal group of folks. And to the extent that that has been true, it has been uh, difficult to more fully integrate all folks in, in this country. So if Blacks are seen similar to the so-called untouchables, and, and then right above us are the Native Americans, and right above them are Latinos, right above them are folks of Asian descent, all of whom are caricatured by a lot of people, particularly like Donald Trump and the people that support him, as historically inferior to whites. It's no matter what we do, 
if we're successful, like Governor Locke has been, there's still something uh, wrong with us or me as an elected official because we're Black, Asian, or Latino. So it's going to be something wrong with us. And no matter what our policies are, they're not worth anything. And that's why these folks, given how cast, as it's been explained by Isabel Wilkerson, working in America, it doesn't matter to a core group, a very significant number of uh, whites, that Blacks are independent thinkers, work as hard as anybody else, uh, and ought to be able to move up. And that's why uh, somebody like a Donald Trump can develop this caricature of uh, Obama as the least successful president we ever uh, had, or people would identify Gary Locke, the first Chinese-American governor in the history of the United States, with caricature criticism, either from America, and I thought it was really enlightening that, you know, some of the Chinese government figures, because he was different than they were characterizing him as a, a Uncle Tom. I think we're going to have to take the structural changes and attitudes of Americans into consideration. And in addition to looking at race, class, we got to look at to what extent we're looked at as a permanent, unequal group that is not worthy or deserving of the opportunity to live the American life, like our Constitution and many of our amendments uh, suggest that everybody should be treated as equal human beings. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity, Yoko, to explain that. Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Councilmember Gossett. What do you see as a path forward that might help in getting this awareness out? Um, yeah, I've been really impressed with the multiracial outcry in the tremendous number of people that have participated in demonstrations in all 50 states as a result of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 25th this year, I am quite hopeful that people from every walk of life, national group, if you want to use CAS, every CAS element have come together with the national demand that once and for all, we should move more radically, more significantly toward equitable treatment in America and go beyond class, beyond race, and beyond caste. Figuring out a way to build a national movement about this outcry for more democracy, more change, more justice, and starting with the impact that living in this country has had from the very lowest class or caste entities in this country is an excellent start, like looking at this issue between the African-American communities and the police is a very good uh, institution to start with because the first police that were established in both the northern and southern parts of the colonies were started in the early 1700s, and their primary job was to find and capture runaway slaves. So from the get, the disdain in the definition 
of Blacks, inferior people, if they run away, if they don't do what we tell them to do, they're somehow criminals. We have to move away from that. I think the movement subsequent to George Floyd provides a profoundly important basis to do that. We just have to build the organizational structures to deal with it more effectively and continue to work. We have a good foundation. And I think an example of how to move toward building multiracial coalitions can continue to be learned from what we did and have done in Seattle from the Franklin City and all the way up to the organizing the Gang of Four, the example that Governor Locke has provided as the head of our county, the head of our state, and then the national representative of all the peoples and the People's Republic of China. Thank you. To feedback off of that, there's these, there's a lot of activity going on in terms of speaking out for social equity, but perhaps people might say that the leadership is not solid. The organizational structures are not solid. Do you agree with that? Well, just looking at CHOP or CHAS that developed after the first couple of weeks of urban rebellion in Seattle, Washington, after George Floyd was killed, it provides examples of what I believe you are talking about. Some people that are not Black, and some of them are Black, uh, got together and started redefining the term. One of the more unfortunate terms that developed around the current movement has been defund police. Had we used the word transform the police, reform the police, it probably would have been easier than the concept or the word defund to define what it is that the kind of changes that we need to give priority to and creating a more humane relationship with the police vis-a-vis the Black and the broader community. And as a result of using defund, you give some ammunition to people like Donald Trump, to many people in the Republican Party, and many people that have been developing justifications for not voting for Biden and going back to voting for Trump because he's the law and order president. What we most need is law and order. If we allow uh, that kind of Uh, dynamic to develop, we won't be as successful. But these kind of divisions around new movements always occur. And I just think that we have the experience we can draw from and the kind of leadership and uh, better following and more diverse following today than we had in the past. And we will be able to overcome. Or as John Lewis said, we can get in some good trouble that benefits the whole nation in the future. We're really capable of doing that by learning from the kinds of things that you're having Gary and I talk about on the radio today. Thank you. Governor Locke, how can we bring about the structural change that we need for racial equality and where do we start? You know, it's easy to be pessimistic in these days, but also very hopeful as, as Larry indicated. It's, it's just amazing to see the outpouring of support and concern and protest, uh, calls for change among all Americans or so many Americans in every part of the country after the very vivid uh, killing of George Floyd. But why is it that during World War II, we had African-Americans serving as Tuskegee Airmen, even though they came from terribly segregated communities or Japanese-American soldiers who became the most right. decorated 
integrated unit in U.S. military history, even though their parents and brothers and uncles and sisters were and aunts were in barbed wire concentration camps. You had uh, Native Americans who came from reservations and just oppression and broken treaty after broken treaty. Why were all these folks fighting for the United States during World War II? despite the troubles in their own homeland and decades and decades of oppression. Well, it's because they believed in the ultimate goodness and the destiny of America and the promise of America. Mm -hmm. They believed in the future of America. And as I said very, very early on, America has never been a perfect country. But unlike other countries, and I've been able to travel the world and I've seen other governments and political systems, we at least have mechanisms for change. Yeah. We, we recently just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the right of women to vote. <laughs> we almost had a, a woman president. I mean, that is so unheard of in other countries where people of color and different ethnic groups within a major country can actually rise, be business leaders and political leaders. We've made mistakes in terms of whether voting for the crime bill in the 90s and And even the Black Caucus supported that in the Congress, supported that. And it was led by President Clinton and and others. At least we can say that was wrong. We can stand up and say, yeah, I voted wrong, or I voted for the Iraq war because I relied on the president and the intelligence agencies, and we made a mistake. You don't see that in other countries. That's the good thing about our country. And so I have hope for the future. How do we make the change, though? Because unless there's a dramatic change in the makeup of the Congress and the White House, I think the change has to be local. It's communities. I mean, the way the Congress works, it's nothing really dramatic except for uh, once in a while, whether it's the war on poverty or the uh, Affordable Care Act and, and maybe some environmental stuff here and there. And But things move slowly in the Congress. And so I really think that if we want real change, we have to work on it at a local level. And it starts with our own families and our own communities. It starts with Bellevue College. It starts with individual employers setting an example and spreading out, learning the lessons of collaboration among different ethnic groups and communities of color as epitomized by the Four Amigos or the Gang of Four that Larry was a part of, really learning the lessons. I have to say that uh, as Larry was talking about the the caste system. There is somewhat of a caste system or there's going to be a group of people in the United States that will never accept people of color in any prominent positions. They will say it's completely illegitimate. Whether a person of color is a CEO of a corporation or a city council member, or even governor. I mean, when I was governor, there was an assassination plot by a white supremacist group in the state of Washington whose view was that as a person of color, I could not be the legitimate governor of the state of Washington. Wow. There was an FBI informant. They actually were able to document that the leader of this group had cased out the governor's office, had walked through the governor's office and done surveillance of the Capitol grounds. We were very fearful of our lives for that uh, certain period of time. But again, it was that a person of color could not be the legitimate governor of the state of Washington. And that's the type of perpetual, I think, delegitimization that many uh, people of color will face in our country and all across America, which is why we need people at the very, very top speaking against extremism, violence, racism, 
And, and it starts with our kids. I mean, the more that our kids can be exposed to each other and, and accept it, you know, it was the kids that really started the environmental movement and Earth Day and recycling and everything else. Mm-hmm. Many of us adults, including myself, we are products of our upbringing. And I myself am a, you know, ha- have some vestiges of, of privilege and, and white privilege, and uh, even though I'm a person of color, and, and uh, it's hard to undo. And we need to constantly review our history to learn and understand the possible implications and the ramifications and the possible outcomes if some of these movements and thoughts remain unchecked, whether it's studying the Holocaust to studying histories of racism against black Americans, racism and discrimination against Asian Americans, the Exclusion Act, the alien land law where people of color, primarily Asians, could not own land in America and certainly mm-hmm. along the West Coast. Talk about Exclusion Act, uh, where Chinese could not come into the United States. Now we're seeing Muslims not being able to come into the United States. And so we have to review these historical facts and, and episodes to understand that these things could come back. These things can come back and we have to be very, very vigilant. Forever vigilant. Well, both of you have been involved in high-level institutions here, policymaking at county levels to the federal level. Governor Locke, you're now the Bellevue College interim president. How do we see pushing this forward when they're large, they're bulky, (laughs) they've been around for a long time? And I'd like to hear each of your take on that. And I'll start with Governor Locke. Well, I, I, I... I'd like to take it first because I always like Larry to to finish and because and, he's so inspiring and, and uh, can give us really good perspective. I think we have to work with all of our institutions, first of all, to make sure that they are responsive to the people, to the people they are trying to serve, whether it's the state government, whether it's the county government, city government, and certainly a college. We need to understand for what purpose do we exist and are we carrying out our mission and, and doing it well? You know, part of the problem with bureaucracies and higher education is is certainly a bureaucracy, no different than a government, is that oftentimes in bureaucracies, and you even see this in the private sector, somebody made a mistake. And so a new policy is put in place that will try to make sure that mistake never happens again. And sometimes these policies are so restrictive and so overbearing that they stifle innovation, creativity and discretion because they're trying to err on the safe side. And as a result, we have people that just go through the motions and check off the boxes and everybody's afraid to be daring and risk-taking and innovative and creative. At the college, first of all, we encourage discussion and debate about what's happening in our society. And hopefully from that robust discussion and education and new perspectives gained and knowledge learned that our students can be forces for change and improvement and good, whether just in their personal lives, in their job environment, and certainly as a member of society. Well, we as an institution should try to model those very same things too. Self-improvement, change, responsibility. Uh, and uh, so you know, with respect to our, our faculty of color, there are many things that we have to change, that we need to change. And we need to do it quickly. If people have been suffering from discrimination, if society has been discriminating and 
subjecting people to a caste system. We have to improve it and change it as quickly as possible. And that means that uh, we have to do that on our own campus in terms of the treatment and the perceptions and the and the feelings of uh, faculty of color, especially uh, black faculty and staff and students. It's an urgency. We can't expect people just to be patient. They've suffered decades and centuries too long. We've got to push our institution. We've got to think, who are we here to serve? What is our reason for being? And if we really care about improving people's lives and doing it in a socially just and thoughtful, inclusive manner, then we have to have that same urgency. So all institutions need to, to be more nimble, more responsive, and think about who is it that they're really trying to serve and, and help. And uh, that's the framework that, that we at the college uh, certainly have to take, and certainly local governments and all units of government uh, have to have. Thank you, Governor Locke. Um, Councilmember Gossett, uh, how do you see encouraging institutions to shift what I'll just do is build upon my last comments, and I really was enlightened by the final comments of uh, Governor Locke. Referencing the book, A Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, she has a chapter in there where she talks about the fact that in Germany today, when they give history on World War II, they don't try to hide that concentration camps were established all over Germany. They talk about where the concentration camps were and the absolute inhumane and death-bringing usages that were given to these places where humans were burned alive and gassed alive of all ages and that we can never have that happen in our country again. They did not, after 48, allow any statutes to the Nazis or to Hitler to remain standing. And still in their classes today, they do not talk about or allow anything that speaks to there being any legitimacy, honor, or that's the way, that's our heritage being Nazis. They don't allow that kind of talk, or they discourage it very significantly. And I'm working with about 18 folks that are all activists, 18 to 30 years old, and we're meeting regularly talking about what's this new world that we want learning from uh, the past. And we're talking about the fact that we can't allow any brothers to talk negatively about we don't want no women running stuff. Uh, when people are hungry, and we should be the first ones to figure out a way that they get adequately fed and, and do it in a respectful and supportive manner. We can't allow, oh, we were just joking and we're talking negatively about people being a gay, lesbian, or transgender folks, regardless of their color. They're human beings. They have to be respected as such. And then we have to be examples we're telling these young people in all of these arenas for the people that we bring into our movement, especially if we want to have a different kind of lifestyle, vision, moral, morals, and be able to teach them. We got to live them and we have to do it as we move toward building the kind of nation and the kind of political 
structures that want the kind of democratic economy, the national health care for everybody, regardless of uh, difference of pay, prison reform. We got to be exemplary now if we want to have this to be sustained after we take over and begin to build uh, the new, more democratic, humane uh, society that our world desires and absolutely needs. And we got to lastly involve everybody uh, that we possibly can. And when they project negative or reactionary attitudes toward the past, we got to jump on it right away, even for at a party at a dinner table or in the park. We can't allow these bad ways or uh, feelings or attitudes or oppressive behaviors to continue. If we're able to build the new movement like this in the future, I'm confident we can have a much higher level of human interactions in this nation that's similar to what our original forefathers, at least on paper and articulately, said they wanted. A land of the free and the brave where everyone is included in mankind. Thank you. Thank you both Councilmember Gossett and Governor Locke. You are both a wealth of perspective and experience and are still active today. Thank you for your time. 91.3 KBCS Community Radio. I'm Yuko Kodama. That was my interview with Governor Gary Locke, former U.S. Ambassador to China, former U.S. Secretary of Commerce during the Obama administration, 21st Governor of Washington State, and current Bellevue College Interim President. Also in the interview was former King County Councilmember Larry Gossett. Councilmember Gossett was also a former Seattle Chapter Black Panther Party member and one of the members of the illustrious Gang of Four activists. This interview is part of an election season partnership with the International Examiner, Pan-Asian American publication at iExaminer.org and Asian Pacific Americans for Civic Empowerment, or APACE. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.